0: so blessed by our brother's ministry to us and we're expecting the Lord to speak to us tonight, aren't we? Let us ask his blessing. Now, Lord, this is your word and your time and you brought us to this very place, this very hour. Bless our dear brother. Put your hand upon him. May he speak with power and authority. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And I want to preach to you tonight about the law of God. I could tell as I observed you coming into the room tonight that this congregation needed a good sermon on the law. So I want to talk to you about the law of God. When we think about the law... We can do so in three categories. First, there's what we call the civil law. And this is how God related to the national life of Israel. And then there's what we call the ceremonial law. And this is how God regulated the religious affairs of the Israelite people. And thirdly, there's what we call the moral law of God. And this is how God relates to all men of all ages. Now, it is a great privilege for me to declare that the civil law and the ceremonial law of the Old Testament have been nailed to the cross of Jesus. And they are no longer binding upon the people of God. Hallelujah. However, God has not changed His mind about what is morally acceptable in His sight. Consequently, the moral law of God is still very much in effect. And the Ten Commandments form a moral constitution from which all moral law is derived. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Let's begin at verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. With laborious effort, I have sought to reduce this sermon down to the customary three points and a poem. I've tried really hard, and I've gotten it down to just six points, and I feel good about my efforts. So without any further ado, here is point number one. I want you to see what I shall call the preamble to the commandments. And I want to point out two things. One, I want you to see the God of excellent greatness. The text says, and God spake all these words. The one who is about to speak the one who is about to establish a moral standard, a criteria by which all men shall be judged, is the excellent, eternal, effulgent God. The one who is about to speak is none other than the sovereign, superlative self-existing God. These are not going to be suggestions for our consideration. These are not going to be recommendations for our approval. These are the words of God. The God of excellent greatness. Number two, I want you to see the God of electing Grace, Listen to it. I am thy God. I brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Do you remember what God said about his choice of the Israelite nation? He said, I did not choose you because you were great among the nations. On the contrary, you were the least among the nations. I chose you because I loved you. And because I loved you, I brought you out of Egypt's land into the land of milk and honey. Well, glory, glory. What God has done corporately for Israel God has done personally for me now I might not look like all that much to you but I am somebody it's not just because I'm a razorback from Arkansas it's because the God of excellent greatness has singled me out and set me up To be the object of his divine affections. Herein is love. Not that you loved me. But that I first loved you. The God of electing grace. Now here's the second item in the sermon. I want you to see the principles. There are two of them. One, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image and bow down thyself unto them. The first tells us whom to worship. The second tells us how to worship. We are to worship God alone and we are to do so in spirit and in truth. Now, our... Catholic and Episcopalian neighbors tell us that when they bow before their images in worship, that they look beyond the images unto the substance of their worship. If in charity we grant them that, we must still occasionally remind them that they violate the second commandment. The commandment does not say, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them unless you look beyond the image unto the substance. It says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, period. I grew up in Jasper County, Mississippi. I grew up out in the country. I lived a sheltered life. I admit it. To my knowledge, no one in our area ever cut down a tree and with part of the wood built a fire uh, to warm themselves by or to cook their food upon And then with the stock, the trunk of the tree, formed and fashioned an idol. Eyes, but unable to see. Ears, but unable to hear. A mouth, but unable to speak. Feet, but unable to go. And then bowed themselves down before it in worship. Nothing like that ever happened where I grew up. That would have been spooky stuff to a country kid like myself. We have not been given to this classic kind of idolatry in our culture, have we? But while that's true, I must caution the church tonight and tell you that Baptists in our day are not without some idols of their own. Let me tell you what some of them are. There's the God of ambition in Baptist life. It's the spirit that causes a Baptist to work from before daylight until after dark seven days a week. Not just trying to subsist, but trying to get ahead, trying to live the American dream, trying to keep up with the Joneses and consequently they sacrificed children for commerce and family for finances and posterity for prosperity and its idolatry and then there's the god of appetite are you aware that eating out has surpassed baseball As the great American pastime. And a lot of Baptists will drive a hundred miles. And spend a hundred dollars. If the word comes that a new five-star restaurant has opened up. But a lot of these same Baptists won't give twenty-five dollars. To the cause of foreign missions. And it's idolatry. And let me tell you there's the God of academics. In Baptist life, the spirit that causes one Baptist to look at another and say, I know, but you don't, and I'm not telling. (laughs) I sat in a banquet hall in Louisville, Kentucky with trustees and professors and administrators for the seminary. And the question was broached to the professor at our table. Do you, sir, believe in the historicity of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis? And he said, oh my, yes. But then the question was narrowed a bit. But do you, sir, believe that Adam and Eve were real historical people? created directly by the agency of God, the progenitors of the human race. And he said, oh no, I don't believe that. I believe, said he, that Adam, spoken of in the book of Genesis, refers not to one man, but to many men and many women. I said, Dr. Watts, the folks back home in Cleburne County, Arkansas, where I live and serve, would experience a high level of emotional stress. If they knew that they were paying the salary of a professor at their seminary who was teaching another generation of preacher boys that the Adam and Eve spoken of in the book of Genesis were not the first man and the first woman created directly by the agency of God, the progenitors of the human race. And he responded, Brother Miller, the average Baptist back home sitting out on the front porch in the rocking chair does not possess the acumen to understand the nuances of theology, nor are they capable of articulating theology. Well, now, you folks don't know me all that well. So I'm going to tell you, that did not set well with this country preacher from Arkansas. And I mustered all of the grace that I possessed at the moment. And I said, Dr. Watts, it is my humble opinion, sir, that a lot of the Baptists back home sitting out on the front porch in the rocking chair have probably forgotten more theology than you apparently know. (laughs) Don't believe it when folks suggest that unless you are familiar with and conversant in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament scriptures, unless you can parse and decline in the Greek language of the New Testament scriptures, that you are incapable of understanding and enjoying the grand theological, and doctrinal themes of the historic Christian religion. That is a lie. If you've got a good Bible and a quiet place, and you're willing to get in that quiet place with that good Bible and read. And I'm amazed that people ask to, for me to recommend a program of Bible reading. As if it were difficult. I suggest Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. That's probably why it's at the front of the book. And read as far as you can. And when you come back the next day. Well I suggest you just take up where you left off. And read. And ere long you will conclude That the God of the Bible is a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And not only will you be a Trinitarian, you'll believe in the unity of the Trinity. For you will have read where Jesus said, I am in the Father, and he is in me, and we are one. It's amazing what reading the Bible will do to shed light. On theology. We've made a God out of academics. I want to remind you. That the great commission. Does not read like this. Go ye into all the world. And build great Baptist universities. Offering a liberal arts education. In a distinctively Christian setting. For everybody in the free world who has enough money to pay the tuition. The Great Commission reads like this. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And when we spend more money on Christian higher education than we do in the evangelistic and missionary enterprises, we've gotten it out of bounds. And it's time somebody said so. So I did. (laughs) Now you are seeing this come to fruition in American culture. Have you noticed in the last few days the criticism of Scott Walker as a potential presidential candidate? Now what I'm saying is not a an endorsement of Scott Walker. I'm simply pointing this out. Albeit, we could do worse. He didn't actually graduate from college. Have you heard this? Nod your head up and down like this. Where have y'all been this past week? (laughs) You can't watch the news for five minutes without having seen this. Well, I want to tell you what my opinion is. I want to tell you, I'm just about up to my eyeballs in presidents who graduated from Harvard and don't have enough sense to get in out of the rain. I think what this country needs is a president who's, first of all, got some common sense and can enact some legislation that is common sense-based. Are you aware that our culture will not endure much longer under the same regime and the same mentality? We have elevated academics to a place of idol worship in this country. Well, I'm done with that now. Here's the next item. There's the God of athletics. Now... I'm going to preface these remarks by telling you that few in this room enjoy athletics more than I. I had to listen to LeGrand Lamb last (laughs) night and Eric carry on this great theological conversation behind me. I would look at them with one eye. And I watched the Razorbacks beat Ole Miss with the other (laughs) eye. I coached Little League Baseball for a number of years. You know how I got my last team? I was out on one of these preaching trips. And the coaches and the commissioner got together and conducted the tryouts and the draft. And they, the other coaches, selected my team for me. Wasn't that noble? I don't know how much you understand about Little League Baseball, but that's not the best way to get a winning team. (laughs) Two sets of the parents saw the roster before I returned and declared to each other, Well, there's not a kid on this team that can run out of sight in a week. (laughs) And when I saw the roster, I tended to agree with them. When I got home, I got my team together and tried to practice on two evenings. But I spent most of my time trying to get it over to them that we ain't going to cuss no more. Thirteen and fourteen-year-olds just took a lot of pride in using a bunch of vulgar four-letter words around the preacher to see what his response might be. So I responded. I got their parents together, and I said, Are you aware your boys cuss like a bunch of sailors down at the pool hall late on Saturday night? I'm not going to have that. Now, I'm not a prude, and I understand the English language Or is a simple matter of certain characters being juxtaposed in the right place, and, you know, that's how we communicate. I didn't ride in here on a turnip truck. <laughs> I understand language. But I'm not going to have that. And your boys can do better. So now what I want you to do is take your boy home and sit down at your breakfast bar. And you straighten him out. Because if he comes back down here tomorrow cussing, I will personally kick his rear end till his nose bleeds. And guess what? They barney fifed it. They nipped it in the bud. They just quit cussing. It's amazing. i take 16, 13- and 14-year-old boys out on Greer's Ferry Lake on my pontoon boat with two jet skis. I'm the only adult out there, and I don't have one minute of trouble with them. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing what kids will do if you'll look them right in the eye and treat them with respect like they've got some worth and value and hold the standard up and act like you expect them to meet it. Well, I told them, they say you can't run out of sight in a week and I don't know how to solve that. You can't coach speed. But I've come up with a, With a program, you're going to learn how to hit the ball so far, you won't have to run as fast. (laughs) Do you know there's a correlation between how far you hit the ball and how fast you have to run? These guys hit the ball over the fence. They don't run as fast as they can. They slow down and enjoy the trip. (laughs) So we went to the batting cage. We'd go early in the morning, mid-morning, heat of the day. Heat of the afternoon, at night after practice, I spent a fortune at the batting cage. I could have bought a batting cage. (laughs) But boys that didn't know which end of the bat to hold, learned how to step up to the plate, swing level, meet the ball, and we won the league championship. Now, do you know what those two sets of parents had done? They had caused such a furor before I got home from that preaching trip. They had gotten the commissioner and the other coaches to agree to take their two hot shot players off my team. So you know what we did when we came up against one of those teams that had one of those hot shot players on it? Well, I'll tell you what we did. Now, we did this in a Christian sort of way. You understand? You <laughs> understand? We beat them like a tied-up goat. That's how we... We beat them like a yard dog, and I loved every minute of them. Look, I wish that mercy rule wasn't in existence. No, I'd have beat them 100 to nothing. I told my wife, Glenda, now I'm probably being too vain, and I'm having too much fun. I might ought to repent. But I'm not going to repent while we're winning. We'll have to lose some first. Hey, no one enjoys competition more than me. But I'm going to tell you something now that you already know. We have made a God out of athletics. A lot of Baptists will take off work early on a Tuesday afternoon and drive 75 miles to watch a high school basketball game when the weatherman says that the drizzle is going to start freezing after dark. But a lot of those same Baptists can't come to church four nights in their own backyard. Now, did I say don't ever drive 75 miles to watch a high school basketball game? I didn't say that. I've driven further than that. I'm just telling you, if you can do that, and you can't be faithful and committed to what's going on down at the house of God, you've gotten it out of balance. And then let me tell you, there's the God of abs. Have you noticed you can't watch the morning news without being bombarded by some Abdominizer commercial? (laughs) Now, it's fairly obvious looking out across this congregation that you men have not been intimidated by that (laughs) right, put that aside here's the third item I want you to see the prohibitive nature of these commandments thou shalt not 8 out of the 10 are stated in this negative prohibitive fashion now I'm amazed at the length to which some of the brethren go to restate the commandments in a more palatable fashion if you didn't know better you might think listening to them that the god of excellent greatness should have attended a modern day church growth seminar to learn how to eliminate the negative and accentuate the positive. I like that little plaque on the wall at the Cracker Barrel. What was it about thou shalt not that you didn't understand? (laughs) The church doesn't have to apologize for the way the Lord said it. Number four I want you to see the punishment for those who disobey the commandments. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Oh, beloved, that puts parents and grandparents in the dust, does it not? That is a humbling statement. I have wished on occasions that God had not said that. Oh, that puts me in the dust. But now notice the fifth item. I want you to see the purpose for the law. Why did God give this moral law in the Ten Commandments? Three reasons. One, God gave us this law to reveal His holiness and His exacting demands. Here is the need for special revelation. You see, men can know about God's existence. They can know about God's power and wisdom and goodness from general revelation, from observing the creation and the natural order, but you'd never know about the Holiness of God, if He had not revealed it in the moral law. Number two, God gave us this law to reveal our sinfulness and our inability to measure up to His standards. Number three, God gave this law to serve as a schoolmaster. To take us by the hand. To teach us that we need a savior outside of ourselves. And to point us to Christ. The law tells us look to Jesus. Look beyond yourself. On your best day you're inadequate. And if you could start today. If you could start today and you never sinned again you'd still be guilty in the judgment for all of the past sins up until today. But now have you noticed? Some folks do a better job of keeping the law than others. What if this afternoon Brother Eric and Brother Lamb and myself had gone over to the river And we jumped in and commenced to swim to the opposite shore. And we got about halfway across and Brother Eric gave out and he went under and he drowned. But Brother Lamb and I continue on. And we get about 75% across the river and Brother Lamb gives out and he goes under and he drowns. But I... Continue on. It's my illustration, isn't it? (laughs) I continue on. And I get 99% of the way across the river. And I give out and I go under. And I drown. Now, by any credible standard for measurement, I excelled. I did better than Brother Eric. He only went halfway. I did better than Brother Lamb. He only went three-fourths of the way. Didn't I do better? But does that matter? Would either of us be any less dead? Does it matter to you if you're going to drown in the river tonight, if it's halfway three-fourths or 99% of the way, no, beloved, you'll be just as dead. And some of you in this room have probably done a better job of keeping God's law than others. But there's not a one of you in this room. No, not one. One. Who has kept all of the law. All of the time. Now here's the last item. Do like this. Now look at me. <laughs> here's the last one. I want you to see. The, the problem. With the law. Now we're told in. Romans chapter 7. That the law. Is spiritual. The law. Is holy. The law is good. The problem is not an essential problem with the law. The the problem with the law is our inability to keep the law. That's the problem with legalism. We can never keep all of the law. Did you all hear about the fellow who died and went to heaven? And St. Peter met him at the gate and he said, Before I let you in, I need to bring you up to speed. We've made some changes here. We are now on a point system. And you must have 100,000 points. Tell me now. What have you done? And with some confidence, he said, I have been a member of the Glen Iris Baptist Church for 50 years. And St. Peter said, That is wonderful. That is worth two points. And the man said, now, St. Peter, let me see if I'm understanding you. I've got to have 100,000 points, and I was a member of the church for 50 years, and that's only worth two points? Is that what you're telling me? And St. Peter said, that's right. What else have you done? And the man said, well, St. Peter, I was a deacon in the Glen Irish Baptist Church for 25 years. And St. Peter said, that is wonderful. That's worth two more points. (laughs) And the man said, St. Peter, I went to all those deacons meetings. I looked at all those financial reports, fired all those preachers, and you're telling me that that's only worth two points? And St. Peter said, that's right. What else have you done And the man experienced a moment of sober reflection. And after a while, he said, Well, St. Peter, I tithed those last two years. (laughs) And St. Peter said, That's wonderful. That's worth one point. And the man said, Now, St. Peter, let me go over this one last time now. You're telling me that I've got to have 100,000 points. And I was a member of the church for 50 years, a deacon for 25 years, and gave all of that money. And all of that combined is only worth five points. Now, is that what you're telling me? And St. Peter said, that's right. And the man stepped back, put one hand on his hip, and he pointed his finger in St. Peter's face. And he said, now, Pete, you listen to me. The way you got the thing set up up here now, ain't nobody going to get in but by the grace of God. (laughs) And St. Peter said, that's right. Ain't nobody going to get in but by the grace of God. Now, my friend, the Bible says when you compare yourself among yourselves, you are not wise. God is not going to judge on a curve. God judges on the basis of the moral law. Have you kept all of the law all of the time? If you have not, you are in need of a Savior. What? condescension, bringing us redemption, that in the dead of night not one faint hope in sight, God gracious tender laid aside his splendor, stooping to woo, to win, to save my soul. Oh, how I love him, how I adore him. The great Creator became my Savior, and all God's fullness dwelleth in Him. Don't look to the law. Look to Jesus and be your saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is our humble prayer that the law of God would have its perfect work in the hearts of these who are present in the room. Lord, if there's even one without the Savior, we plead that they would turn from their sins, that they would confess their moral inability and cast themselves upon the mercy of the Lord. And we rejoice, our Father, that those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved that those who believe upon the name of Jesus shall not be confounded, shall in no wise be turned away, but they shall be saved. May it be so now, for Jesus' sake. Amen.